Primary Care Knowledge Boost, Community Pharmacy Explained. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. I'm Dr. Sarah McDermott. And I'm Dr. Lisa Adams. And today we're talking to the wonderful community pharmacist, Lovejit Kandula, who's going to explain her role in community pharmacy and talk us all through all manners of things about community pharmacy working in primary care alongside primary care, um, as part of primary care, in fact. <laughs> exactly. Um, we uh, grilled her with all the questions that we've ever wanted to ask a community pharmacist. Um, so we talk about um, what, exactly what, what they are, what Sarah said. We also go into um, things around stock shortages, how the um, community pharmacy and primary care can interact better, um, the services that they supply, the um, advice about um, repeat prescribing, um, things around prescribing errors. She gives us lots of top tips and it's just really, um, really good to hear her perspective about how things are going within community pharmacy at the minute. Yeah, we hope you get a lot out of this as we did and we'll be back at the end to share our learning points. Enjoy. Hi everybody, uh, my name is Lovejit Kandula. I'm the uh, Director of Pharmacy Transformation for Greater Manchester LPC that represent over 600 community pharmacies in Greater Manchester with a local statutory NHS representative body and I also currently chair the Community Pharmacy Provider Board in the ICS which um, where we work very closely with our primary care board colleagues from dentistry, optometry and general practice as well. Amazing. Um, and we've brought you here with all of those lovely qualifications um, and background because we want to talk about um, community pharmacy today. So thank you so much for coming um, and speaking to us about that. Um, so we thought we'd start with a bit of a broad question, but for anyone out there who doesn't know or doesn't fully understand, can you tell us what community pharmacy is? Yep. So community pharmacies um, in you know the past have been known as chemists. So like GPs, um, community pharmacists um, are part of the NHS family and um, about 1.6 million people actually visit a pharmacy in England every day. So that's a lot of people. Um, community pharmacies are situated in the high street location. They can be situated near GP practices, in, inside supermarkets, and many are open long hours when other healthcare professionals are, are not available. So um, we've got chains, we've got independents, we've got high street locations. And the traditional role of community pharmacy was to dispense medication and supply medication. But over the last few years, we've seen an extension in our role and community pharmacies have been developing clinical services. Um, and providing more and more clinical services as per the national direction in addition to their traditional dispensing role and this is to enable community pharmacy to better integrate into the NHS and work more closely with our general practice colleagues, hospitals and other um, healthcare professionals in the NHS. So I think the extension of clinical services shows that community pharmacy's potential is huge and there's a recognition that increasingly we have a much bigger role to play now and going forward. Um, we also provide a number of services already. So things like um, medication adherence reviews, for example. So we support medication reviews with patients to ensure that they're taking their medication correctly. They give them counselling support. We help um, uh, patients manage their long-term conditions. We also do a lot of prevention work now as well. That's important to mention. So um, we provide a lot of healthy lifestyle advice, signposting, um, some pharmacies will provide weight management, vitamins advice, and we get 
patients coming from all ages. So right up to a baby uh, with her mother, right up to somebody who's very elderly. I think we're a setting that basically um, see that person from their birth all the way up to, you know, their, their elderly part of their life. So I think we're in the heart of the community. And I think it's important to mention that we're also a community asset. So we're an important touch point for many, many people that live in that local community. And often the community pharmacists and the teams are very well known by local residents and they often speak the local language. And most importantly, we can provide an, a service to a patient without the need for an appointment. And so that accessibility um, and being able to walk in provides that extra assurance to people that if they do need healthcare advice and support, they can get it uh, in, in many, many locations at many hours. And also, we don't necessarily register to one pharmacy. Patients always have the choice to go wherever they want. You know, there's always a local community pharmacy near you that can provide you with healthcare advice and support. It's, it's amazing, really, when you put it like that, especially 1.6 million people visiting a community ph pharmacy a day uh, in the UK. That's mad. <laughs> That's a lot of people. Um, so you alluded there that the future is quite broad. Um, so we gather the remit is changing. So what, what services do community pharmacies provide? So we have something called an NHS community pharmacy contractual framework, which is the CPCF. So there's three levels of service. So the first part is essential services. So that's what every community pharmacy must provide these services. And they'll be quite obvious to everybody, such as dispensing, safe supply of medicines, making sure we're advising the patient about the medicines being dispensed. And we have an obligation to keep a record of all the medicines that are supplied and make sure that significant advice and support is made. Then you've got the repeat dispensing element. Um, other elements include the promotion of healthy lifestyles. That's part of our essential contract. So it's about opportunistic one-to-one -one advice about healthy lifestyle topics and also getting involved in six health promotion campaigns a year. That includes a promotion of flu. And you may have seen that many pharmacies are now providing flu and vaccination services as well, as well as signposting to important services such as mental health services, social services, sexual health services. So we're really an important point of contact for the patient to ensure that we can get the right help to them at the right place and the right time. Um, support for self-care is very, very important agenda now. Um, we know that the provision of advice and support by pharmacy staff to help people derive maximum benefit from the prescription medicines they have, but also to help them to self-manage their illness. And that is a really important way that we can support the patient, but also to take pressure off urgent care and general practice as well. And I think we're already absorbing that. So that's one level. And then you have a second level, which is called advanced services. So that's more what you would probably understand as the clinical services. And many, many pharmacies do engage and sign up. It is a choice for the pharmacy to sign up to do these services, but we're increasingly finding over 95% of pharmacists are signing up. So for example, we have services such as the NMS service. So that's the new medicine service. So if a patient is prescribed a new medicine, we have three consultations with the patient to help them understand the medication, what it's for, how to take the medication correctly. And they're followed up at intervals of time to make sure that they're not suffering any side effects so that we don't have a situation where a patient's prescribed medication. And often, as you know, people stop taking the medication or halve the dose by themselves. And that adherence to what's been prescribed is really important to manage the condition and prevent complications and ending up in hospital. Another one is um, very recently we've been now committed 
commissioned to provide hypertension case finding, which in layman's term is a blood pressure checking service. So we have um, a number of pharmacies now and we're in readiness to start providing blood pressure checks in accordance to national criteria. And also that will help to improve CVD outcomes, which is a key focus for the NHS. We have a smoking cessation pathway that's being implemented now. So that's basically if a patient is discharged from hospital and they require a stop smoking support, they can be referred to a pharmacy of their choice and that pharmacy can do the NRT supply and provide behavioural support to that patient. And that, that is a really great pathway because that, again, helps to prevent ill health and we can really support people in the community once they've come out of hospital. So there's that continuity of care. I'm sure you've seen the COVID vaccination service and flu vaccination service. And we also have something called the CPCS or the Community Pharmacy Consultation Service. So essentially that started as referrals from NHS 111 to community pharmacy for minor illness and repeat supply of medicine. So if a patient exhibits minor illness symptoms, they can be referred to a pharmacy of their choice and then the patient can go to that pharmacy and get the support they need. And because that service was very successfully run for a few years, that pathway has been extended to general practice. So we have been working over the last couple of years in Greater Manchester with my colleagues in Community Pharmacy Provider Board to set up the IT um, systems to allow general practice to refer patients to community pharmacy for patients with minor illness. We know that patients are waiting a long time for their appointments. And actually, it's it's estimated that 6% of GP appointments could be seen in community pharmacy for minor illness. So if you add that up for the country, that's a lot of referrals. And that pathway is also now being extended to urgent care. So there will now be the opportunity for urgent care to be able to see the patient and check to see if that patient's got minor illness and then refer them to a local community pharmacy of their choice. So that's not all of them, but with just a, a few highlights. And then we have a third tier, which is NHS locally commissioned services. So those services I just described were national, but we also have some services that are actually commissioned in Greater Manchester. And these are a range of services like emergency hormonal contraception services, the pill, you know, substance misuse services. So patients that require methadone and patients that, you know, require addiction, substance misuse support, healthy start vitamins. We've got locally commissioned stop smoking services as well. So you can see suddenly that the potential for commissioning local services to meet local health population needs is is quite immense. So with the integrated care partnership strategy being developed, we're working with primary care now to develop the primary care blueprint, as you may have heard. So we've got a key role in reducing those inequalities. And what we'd like to see is standardised services across Greater Manchester. So if we've got a stop smoking service, we want to see it the same service in every borough in Manchester mm. to make sure that there's a consistent offer for all our patients and that we can actually signpost and actually utilise community pharmacy a lot better. So, you know, we are in the process of developing other ones. So we work very closely with local commissioners and that all depends on local health needs, population health needs. Just to mention as well, before we go on, that there's been a recent announcement nationally that there's ongoing negotiations for uh, what's called a common condition service. So by winter time, we may see another, if you like, a minor illness service. So when patients 
come to community pharmacy for a CPCS, often we may have to currently send them back to general practice for a prescription. And the idea is, is that we're able to actually supply that medicine as well to the patient. So there's lots of new developments, PGD contraception service. So now they've just announced, um, you know, a service where pharmacists can provide a repeat supply of contraception services. But that is at early stages and it's coming. Wow, that's um, very all singing, all dancing in terms of the plans for it and some of the things coming along. But that must must mean that quite a lot of pressures landed on community pharmacy services. Um, what are the pressures like at the moment? Yeah, that's a really great question. <laughs> um, so since COVID, um, we've seen an increase in demand, you know, from patients. Many, many patients are coming through our doors. And it's important to note that more than 90% of community pharmacy's income comes from the NHS contract. It does look like we're a shop, but 90% of our income is from NHS um, contractual funding. And we can't pass that cost on to patients because they're NHS services. So we are currently operating in crisis mode because the funding envelope that we had was agreed five years ago and it's remained flat. But the number of services that we're being asked to provide has increased the cost of living has increased, the business costs have increased, and the pressure has led to many people in our workforce leaving the profession. And that's very sad because they couldn't cope with the workload. They couldn't cope with the lack of staffing because we couldn't afford to employ more staff. Then there's an increasing reliance on locums to keep that business open as well. So temporary staff and the cost has escalated out of control. Many pharmacies are operating in a crisis mode, are being forced to reduce services. And really, it's a 25% reduction in real terms, if we're calculating it accurately and according to the national figures. You can see very quickly how community pharmacy are struggling to make ends meet from end to month. So to give you one example, I had a contractor who said that they had a £200 buffer in the bank at the end of the month in the winter period. And they said, I didn't know whether my business could actually remain open next month. So it's an extremely stressed group of people. Mm. So there are national campaigns like the National Save Our Pharmacy campaign going on. And our national negotiating body, Community Pharmacy England, are currently engaging with and lobbying government. And we also have written to MPs as well. In GM, just to put it into perspective for you, We've seen closures of pharmacies now, and you may have read about the Sainsbury's pharmacies closing, yeah. and that amounts to 12 in Greater Manchester. So we've seen a reduction from 693 to 642 pharmacies since 2020, and we are expecting more closures to come. And obviously, if we have more closures, that's less pharmacies for patients to access. Mm -hmm. So if those pharmacies start picking up that workload, you can see how very quickly that pressure is going out of control. So um, there is some tough lobbying and lots of campaigns and lots of press coverage nationally ongoing. Um, but we are conducting now 65 million informal consultations, none of which are being paid for at the moment. I think it's fair to say that you can see why it's difficult to get through to us on the phone or why sometimes you have to wait longer in the queue. And to couple that, because there's an impact on patients and patients do expect everything to be ready in, in very, very quickly in pharmacy, um, our pharmacy staff have faced violence, physical and verbal abuse as well. And there have been at least two cases that I know of where people ended up in hospital 
because of that abuse. So, you know, I think that what, what we need is a really great understanding and compassion from patients and other parts of the healthcare system to say that we are absolutely doing our best. And if we then add the stock and supply issues to that, you can suddenly see that there's an increase in cost of acquiring medicines, but actually medicines are increasingly going in and out of stock and we can't mm. predict the supply chain. So that then upsets patients because if we can't get hold of that medicine and we're not told how long it's going to be till the medicine comes back in stock, inevitably that patient will either have to go to another pharmacy to check if they've got stock or we need to contact general practice to ask them for you know an alternative prescription an alternative formulation sometimes we'll say let's double up the dose of a lower dose medication we try many many things before we say we'll have to ask you to prescribe something else and these issues are being raised to the department of health and social care but they're largely out of our control but they are adding up to two and a half hours a day of extra work for community pharmacy and their teams. Mm -hmm. So I think if we couple the operational, financial and workforce pressures, then add the fact that you've got the medicines supply issues and the cost of acquiring those medicines is increasing, you can see how quickly, you know, businesses are getting to the point where it's becoming unsustainable for them to remain open. And I think it would be a great loss to our local communities if more closures happened, but also recognizing that that's only going to add pressure to general practice and add pressure to urgent care and add pressure to GP out of hours. So we need to do whatever we can to prevent that. Yeah, absolutely. Loved it. You make very, very compelling arguments there. And it's just, it's awful to hear about the pressures. And when it's all laid out like that, kind of one after the other, you can totally understand why there's a little bit of resignation and issues within uh, community pharmacy um you just touched there about the stock shortages um that are kind of happening and um, what are the main issues um apart from what you've covered and um, that you think it's important for us to know about that i think one of the key concerns apart from the fact that the supply chain is unpredictable and we don't quite understand the reasons but it does seem like there's issues at the borders you know in terms of changes basically to the regulations in terms of what's happening when medicines are imported or exported but we need the government to help us to resolve that issue. So what we can do is try to link with as many suppliers as we can, keep ringing them, keep putting the orders on. But essentially, we are trying to raise awareness of that issue to say we need help and support to address that issue so that it doesn't impact patients. So obviously, you know, if something's out of stock, then that patient's not getting that medication for that number of days. But unfortunately, we all had visible um, experience of the strep A issues in the winter and how all the antibiotics went out of stock. And we were at the helm, you know, working with our colleagues in the ICB, like the chief pharmacist and our chief medical officer here to try and, you know, mitigate the risk. Yeah, I think we were, we were all up against it during that strep A outbreak and the last few winters um, have been pretty horrible for everyone. I think sometimes when you're in a very pressured system, and and also when there's not the communication between the two of us, um, community pharmacy and general practice, sometimes it's kind of, it obviously doesn't in, engender a very good relationship necessarily. Um, one thing that I was going to ask you about actually on that note was about um, sometimes when we get notes and we're on call and it's, um, you know, something's out of stock and we get a message that ph- pharmacists have said, it's out of stock, please prescribe an alternative. Uh, one of the things that I think a lot of us 
get a bit frustrated if we don't know what you've got in stock you know what can what we what can we have instead have you got like a different dose have you got a different uh, very similar antibiotic or a very similar hypertension medication any points on that because it sounds like obviously you're trying to navigate so much there but what would you say back to that kind of query that we have no, it's a very good question. And um, in recognition of the issues that have been uh, raised to me over the last couple of years, we've worked with the ICB and general practice to develop some GP pharmacy interface principles. Yeah. And those basically highlight a key set of things that we need to do to basically manage these things safely, effectively. So the key to building the relationship is actually communication mm-hmm. between the individual GP practice and the pharmacy. But there's other things like encouraging patients to order their own medication rather than having to come to pharmacy. That might be one way. The other way is, for example, to improve the process of repeat ordering. So give community pharmacy enough time. So GP practice should have enough time to process the prescription. But we also need 72 hours to order the medication. So, for example, you know, encouraging patients to order on the NHS app if they've got that literacy um, making sure that all medicines are issues at the same time so you don't have medication issued at different points. You know, sometimes you get five items and then another two come later. So with these principles have been agreed with general practice and ICB colleagues, and we're in the process of developing a task and finish group to help implement those principles to make things better. I would say that it would be good to add to the guidance that if community pharmacy advise that something's not in stock, that we should encourage community pharmacy to make contact with general practice to talk to them to discuss it's it's no good as saying oh you know we can't just quote any other medication straight away because the patient has comorbidities they might have other diseases um, mm-hmm. there could be other contraindications and at the moment we don't have access to the full care record either which doesn't help but I have been working with my general practice and uh, community pharmacy colleagues to build a project for community pharmacy to have access to the GM care record. So that's something that's in progress and that's really going to help us because then we'll be able to look at the record and see what conditions they have, what they've had before, what they've got allergies they have. So you can't really make a clinical decision unless you can see the record. Mm. But I think that if we had back office numbers where people could easily get in touch with each other, that would help because the frustration is they're not talking to me. But pharmacy often say, we're trying to get through to speak to someone, but we can't get through. And if we get through, we get through to receptionist. But then the receptionist, she has so many calls or he has so many calls to deal with that it's very hard and the GP might be in a clinic. So there needs to be some agreement, isn't it, that maybe there's a time, for example, that any queries can be picked up. Is there another opportunity? So we're exploring those kind of solutions together with general practice to see what would work for community pharmacy and general practice to make things better. And so we've just been through the strep outbreak that we mentioned. And during that, they were talking about the serious shortage protocols. Um, Can you talk us through those? Mm, Okay. Yeah. So SSPs or serious shortage protocols are a potential way to help pharmacies to manage any serious shortages of medicines that may occur without needing to refer patients back to prescribers. But It's also important to note that it's only if the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, in their opinion, they agree that there is a shortage. Only then will there be a national issue of an SSP. So a lot of evidence had to be provided nationally 
for them to understand that there is a real issue and only then would an SSP be provided. So it is great if that comes along, but often there's a time delay between the time that there's a supply issue and the time inevitably that an SSP is released. If a pharmacist has an SSP or a serious shortage protocol, they would work through the guidelines of that protocol. They would then consider if an alternative should be supplied and then they must also get the patient's consent. So, yeah, that's definitely an option now um, in the case of extreme issues. And we do have SSPs for other things and we have had them since 2019. But it only became visible to the system when the antibiotic shortages happened. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a very nice, clear explanation, actually. Thank you. Um, so in terms of, um, we've mentioned about re- repeat prescribing FAFs and things and how difficult that can be. Um, do you have any advice about how to safely, effectively sort repeat prescribing issues so that they are less faffy for everybody? Mm. Yeah, so that comes back to the GP pharmacy interface principles that we described. And that's a document that I'm more than happy to share with you. It's been published and signed off. And that actually provides some guidance on what five or six top things you can do to help it. And if essentially it is about good communication, having open communication channels. Thirdly, making sure that there's an understanding of the pressures at the GP practice end, but also understanding that community pharmacy need time to process a prescription. Sometimes they need extra time now to actually source the medication, get it ready. And often we need to deliver that medication too. So we need that time and that will smooth the process out because then a patient isn't being, for example, you might get a patient says, okay, I've got a prescription now. Can you just go down the road and get it? And suddenly if there's 120 patients all coming in suddenly, that then doesn't feel like a very smooth process to to the patient, does it? So I think making sure that, um, for example, when medication is prescribed and there's like multi-prescription medicine, if you like, you know, sometimes people have four items, five items, six items, that wherever possible, it's not always possible that we make sure that we issue all those at the same time and also provide that sufficient time. And I think that community pharmacy also, you know, should take some steer from general practice as in the frustration that was described today we should take that on board and try and develop any processes that are going to help encourage people to provide as much advice and guidance to each other so the gps there to say actually i've got this problem this is the problem i have what do you have in stock it has to be a conversation and not something that can be done on email um, and i think that is probably the only way to resolve those issues I think general practice and community pharmacies are facing an increase in workload. We have to be empathetic to the position on both sides. So I think the patient-led ordering is going to be really key. Like it, It might not be suitable for everybody, but many patients can be encouraged to order their own medication through the NHS app, for example, which I understand is integrated in already into prescribing systems. That would take a lot of pressure from general practice and also take pressure off community pharmacy. And that often can be, you know, a point where, you know, that, that can cause the tension because a patient saying that they don't have it in stock. So they say, I want it. And the GPs, you know, kind of say, well, actually, they shouldn't have had this. Why are they having it again? And it's again, it comes back to good communication and integrated working. So what have we done to encourage that over the last two years? We tried to assign named community pharmacy leads in each PCN to interact with the PCN pharmacists and PCN general practice and that's work in progress obviously COVID put us back quite a lot but we hope that basically we'll have 
an interface of communication, say for me, I would talk to my ICB general practice colleagues from the boards. Then we've got our LPC that have locality board members that would start to work with the place at Thameside or in Rochdale and Wigan. And then hopefully we'll have a tier at the PCN where you've got people that you can actually speak to. That's the ambition so that we've got named people that can talk to each other. And, and, and I think it does come down to relationships and joint working. We are going to have to work together. So if we if we're going to be sustainable and be able to survive because the pressures aren't going away, the workload is going up. So we're just going to have to help each other manage that situation. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. And it's, it's the same across the entire system, isn't it? It's just all about the communication and relationships and, and helping each other out. Um, the other big area that we had just to um, touch on around medications is prescribing errors. Um, so we wondered if you had any top tips around avoiding those. Um, yep. Okay. So I think um, there's a few areas that I thought as a top and they're not exhaustive, but I think these are commonly in you know, if you look at research around patient safety, these are the common things that come up. So, for example, the reconciliation of medicines when a patient is discharged from hospital is really key. So, sometimes there can be errors in transcribing that medication correctly at the hospital point. It could be that the medications change, but that hasn't been entirely transcribed correctly. And it could be that the pharmacy doesn't pick that up. So, all parts of the system need to be making sure that the medication that's issued when a patient is discharged from hospital is correct. So to give you an example, many years ago, I had an example of somebody on blood pressure medication and the dose was increased. But what happened was the old dose wasn't taken off, but the new dose was added too. So suddenly you've got, yeah. you know, and, and that's a very easy error to make. But thankfully, you know, we caught it and I rang back saying, are you sure you want both of these? no, no, it should be five milligram. We need to take the 2.5 off. So if you can replicate that for many, many, many medicines, that reconciliation is really important. And to support that, another service that I haven't mentioned yet is called DMS. So as part of our essential contract, we now have a service whereby patients discharge medication is sent electronically to the community pharmacy. It's a service that we're in the process of rolling out. So it provides the opportunity for community pharmacy to download that discharge information and double check and that is another way that we can reduce hospital admissions and it you know it's documented you know in research-based evidence shows that there are a large number of admissions which are related to post-discharge hospital medication errors so that's the first one the second area which i think is quite key is opioids so you know morphine and tramadol ensuring that doses are appropriate and quantities prescribed are such that you're not stockpiling at home, counselling the patient to ensure that they're not taking too much because we have seen much evidence around opioid overdose, basically. It could be that the patient doesn't understand that morphine and tramadol are both opioids or they might have something in stock at home that they should have stopped, but actually they continue to take the new one and the old one. So you can quickly see how it's really important to make sure also that if a preparation is changed, that there's a titration of that dose is appropriate to minimize any side effects. So I think that, you know, is well documented nationally. And I think there's a lot of work to do on making sure that opioids, you know, are managed well. Another one is insulin is, is a good one, I think. And again, 
we do need to make sure that we're all working. And this isn't just prescribing. This is also at the point of dispensing too, that we cross-reference available information to ensure that the identity of the insulin product is correct. I mean, the difference between a Humalog Mix 25 and a Humalog to, you know, if you provide, provided 20 units of that insulin instead of that one, that could rapidly, you know, really, really have quite severe effects for a patient. So, I think that checking of that insulin preparation is really key. And I think the GM care record is going to be a really great development for us because that's going to empower us to stop having to ring general practice to query, but we'll be able to look at the record in the future. Mm. And it's important to mention at this point that in 2026, community pharmacists will come out of university with independent prescriber qualifications. So there is a national pharmacy integration pilot that is going to take place this year to start mapping out the clinical governance arrangements and how this is going to work in each ICB across many, many ICBs in the country. So we can see how the GM care record is going to be important. And if prescribing abilities are going to be given, if you like, to community pharmacists, that's going to make general practice and community pharmacy want to work even closer together because we might actually be able to support the workload and become almost an extension, if you like, of general practice to support patients in the communities. And then you've got drugs which require blood tests, such as you know, AC inhibitors, the lithium is an important one, things like um, certain antibiotic, digoxin. So in order to make sure that basically the medication that they have within the patient system is correct, a regular blood test needs to be done. So again, I'd like to get to the point where community pharmacy can also check to see if that blood test has been done before they dispense the medication and pick that up. But also, I think there's still issues with this because sometimes things get missed and, um, you know, patients are still maybe suffering more side effects than they should. And sometimes patients don't talk about it until we sit down and talk to them in a counselling room because they say, well, I'm not, I'm not too sure. Uh, maybe I'm doing something wrong. They don't want to reach out for help because they think maybe they've made a mistake. And I think that's the important culture change we need. We need patients to reach out and talk to us and make sure they understand what side effects to look out for um, and, and so that they recognize those symptoms themselves and they can come out and reach for help. And I think that we need to be repeating that message, you know, at different points of care to make sure that we're empowering patients to really take care of their own health. So if I give you a, an example on paper, this patient who was um, a type 2 diabetic looked perfect and they were given metformin, but there was, seems to be some issues and they were going in and out of the doctor, sat down, talked to them and said, how are you doing with your medication? And the patient went silent. This was a couple of years ago. And I said, tell me, you know, are you tolerating the medication well? Are you taking it? So I said, actually, I have diarrhea. So I kind of skip doses. And I, I don't really want to tell anybody. And I was like, well, that, that's that's okay. I said, we can help you because there are other formulations that could actually prevent you from having diarrhea. So that's a really important point, isn't it? So I was able to get in touch with a very nice GP that I work quite closely with and say, you know, could we prescribe modified release and see if that works? And after that, that patient was able to not have to keep taking tablets. They were also doing a night shift. So that was proving very inconvenient for them having to go to work, then be worried about having to go to the toilet, you know. So you can see quickly that those kind of adherence, counselling and advice and really listening, taking the time to listen to the patient to make sure, are they actually taking that medication and are they taking it correctly? And I think that's what I would take away that I think we know this is a problem and we know that 30 to 50% of patients actually stop taking their medication or don't take it 
correctly within two weeks of being it prescribed. That's national research has shown that. So if we can even tackle that, I think we can collectively take a lot of pressure off NHS and prevent patients getting ill. Yeah, well, that would make huge gains in terms of um, yeah, chronic disease management, definitely. And yeah, that even those examples are perfect. Yeah, um, you mentioned about talking to the PCN pharmacist. Um, what kind of interactions happen at the moment? between um I, I mean this will be variable won't it but um between community pharmacies pcn pharmacists and pharmacy technicians is there much integration at the moment yeah i think that is uh, you know there's a huge gap there and just to provide some context to this at one point um, we have something called a pharmacy quality scheme in community pharmacy which is a national quality scheme that we have to basically deliver in community pharmacy we had a specific part of that which was actually to get a PCN community pharmacy lead in every PCN. And the idea of that was to get a person in place, get a person who can integrate and talk to the PCN and and work things out, but also to help increase the uptake of flu and COVID vaccinations and develop business continuity plans. So that was over two years. But unfortunately, there was a little bit of funding in that pot to do that, but that's now been pulled. So even though we did all the work setting 67 leads up across GM and they did some great work, we've got a case study booklet about how they interfaced and conversations they've had. It was variable because it depended on the receptivity as well of PCN colleagues. So some were very open and welcoming. Some, you know, to be fair to PCNs, they've got a lot of work on and so maybe they weren't as open to that conversation at the beginning. So what I would like to do is speak to the ICB about investing so that basically we can backfill, if you like, or release the capacity of that pharmacist. It, you, I've described the pressures to you so you can see the difficulty that I've got. I absolutely want to support integration, but I can't release the staff to be able to engage in these daytime meetings because they've barely got enough people in the pharmacy. So if we're going to enable that, we need to invest to allow that pharmacist to be able to be released to come to a PCN meeting and, and take that separate time to be able to do that that work. So that's ongoing conversations that we've got, but I think we've got a long way to go. And I think we need to explore what the opportunities are together. But the, the fundamental infrastructure has been set up. So that's the good news. And I think if that funding was there and we could release that capacity, then absolutely that's an option. But that's been um, on mine and my LPC board's uh, radar for a long time. So I'll keep you posted. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, it's been utterly wonderful to talk to you because I think there's just not that communication that we'd really like to all have. And I think if we were working in a less pressured environment, we'd all get along and have, you know, really, really interesting, high quality conversations together. So it's really nice to actually have, have a bit of a chance to talk. Yeah. And what, what were the learning points that you'd like for people to take away from this chat today? So I think the key point is, for me is that we just need to understand each other's pressures and we need to understand the challenges each other face because I think if we understand the degree of that challenge and how much risk there is at the moment in the system and the fact that we're virtually you know in some cases on the verge of closing that will help to build some compassion I think and hopefully open that communication and understanding and with regards to services which I haven't spoken so much about we've got a lot of work going on to try and increase the level of GPC PCS referrals 
And in some areas, it's very successful. In other areas, not so successful. And that's because there's particular limitations, if you like, to what we can help with and what we can't. So we just need that understanding to be built. So again, you know, there's some excellent resources now on the Primary Care Board website. We've developed resources for general practice, which is in the GP section, which can really help general practice to understand how to leverage and use this service to best effect so that we can actually help to take that pressure from general practice. The third one is around the GP pharmacy interface principles. These are GM integrated care principles that have been co-developed with general practice colleagues, locality, place-based leads, community pharmacy. We're really keen to make sure that every practice and pharmacy have these and use this as a foundation of principles to kind of build their future communications. And the fourth thing I would say is um, is making sure that there's an understanding about medicine supply and stock issues. Um, and that just remembering that not every pharmacy is linked to the same wholesaler. So it's not necessary that one pharmacy is not truthful. It's that there's regional variation. One particular company might have managed to get 100 boxes, but the other one just ran out. So the way to address that is to communicate with each other and talk to each other. And I think if general practice tell pharmacy, this is what I'd like from you, and community pharmacy explain their position, this is what I can provide you and this is what I can't, that will be a much better way of working going forward. And the last thing I'd say, just another top tip is, Please keep a lookout for any news on when community news services are coming. We do now have a program team in the primary care team that has been set up. We still work collectively as LPC, Community Pharmacy Provider Board, with the GM primary care team. And, and we're looking to try and get more briefings out to general practice and localities to make sure that they understand what services are coming and what stage we're at. Because if a service lands nationally, it doesn't mean that we can deliver it tomorrow. It can take quite a few months for pharmacies to do the training and get ready. So I think that would be my, my top things. Please help us to raise awareness of the community pharmacy issue so that we can save our pharmacies. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks so much, Lovejet. And hopefully this has provided a bit of a platform for you as well um, to be able to get the word out. But we've really enjoyed talking to you, to you today. And yeah, I've learned a lot about community pharmacy that I didn't know before. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Um, so yes, Sarah, now that um, it's, it's just us two, um, what did you take away from the chat today? Um, yeah, I really enjoy talking to Lovejet. She's incredibly passionate and I really enjoyed getting to understand the pressures that they're under. So I just think when the pressures are quite bad, we can sometimes sort of take it out on each other. When I worked in a different healthcare service and the pressures were not as bad, um, people were much nicer to each other. So it's really nice to have a non-pressured conversation. And generally, if I've ever needed to call a pharmacist, it's been a really lovely conversation, but it's just often in very stressful times. So uh, yeah, it's nice to do it in a day that I'm not actually at work and I'm on call and I'm like, well, what have you got? <laughs> um, because yeah, I mean, the things that they're doing is just, it's incredible to just take that step back, appreciate the sort of services, the enhanced services, the contractual services, all the other things that it's supposed to be doing or that it might be mopping up or taking care of to really help integrate general practice, but just how on earth we can do that and make it work yeah. and support people through it and make sure that, you know, things aren't shutting down. Yeah, I know the volume. I was yeah. really surprised by how much is they're already doing, but also that is in the pipeline and is going to get thrown at them and the fact that the funding hasn't increased mm. to reflect that and they're being asked to do so many more services and and the intention 
you can see is is great and it's valid um, and it's to ease the pressures and it's you can see how they're well placed to be able to do some of this work but it just doesn't seem very fair at the minute um, and you can yeah you can just see how it might crumble if things aren't done to help but I, I the thing that I written down that actually um, she highlighted and I thought was a really important point was just how um, she said that they're the community pharmacy are the heart of the community um, and she's right they are such an asset yeah. they they're on the ground they're local a lot of people know their community pharmacy especially in like smaller towns more rural areas um they're like a point of contact to healthcare that doesn't feel as behind walls in a way um it, it's the nature that it is and, and that's how general practice has to function but you do have to make an appointment where you can just walk into the community pharmacist and speak to somebody and i can see how um they're they're a really good asset to have and if, if there's anything ever any way that you need to get in touch with your community probably speaking to a community pharmacist is a good shout yeah and the fact that i didn't know that 90 percent of their income came from the contract like she's right you do mm. see them as a bit of a shop but i just assumed that as the way that the business functioned that quite a lot of their um like financial intake would come from people purchasing things in the pharmacy but more of it comes from the contract i was really surprised by that yeah that's mm. a huge role and i think um i've definitely seen the interactions I've had where um, people have been supported through their uh, concordance and sort of still taking their medicines, that's been quite useful. Um, it'd be interesting to see how it goes in the future, but yeah. Definitely. Yeah, no, definitely. Really interesting conversation with LoveJet and hopefully um, you guys out there have taken some bits away. You know a little bit more about community pharmacy. We can support each other. It's all going to be lovely going forward. Um, <laughs> That's so positive. <laughs> Um, but uh, if you want to get in touch with us in any way you can do and we'll put all the links in the episode description as we normally do Um, if you would like to continue the positivity and give us a like or a subscribe that would be fantastic because that also helps to share the love from the podcast side Um, and yeah we'll be we'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode till next time on primary care knowledge boost This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in 2023. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewees' opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast.